0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Split-base cocktail will make it classic. That Venn diagram is not a genre of drinks that's brimming with options beyond maybe the Vieux Carré in between the sheets. And honestly, it's questionable whether today's drink the War Days, can be considered a classic, but it is past time you get to know this 1930s gin and apple brandy mashup. Beyond a brief mention in the Savoy Cocktail Book, there's very little out there about the War Days or War Days, still don't know what we're calling this thing, but that's okay, because it instead allows us to do a deep dive on ingredients and cast a gaze back to the heady days of New York City cocktail culture, circa 2005 to 2010-ish. We're able to do that thanks to our fantastic guest, Erin Aaron Reese. Erin's experience spans almost every facet of this industry. After moving to NYC from the PNW Portland, she worked at such storied haunts as Bar Milano, Maya Well, Death & Co. to name but three. She's certified in all things spirits and bartending, a speed rack national champion, and the tales of the cocktail Dame Hall of Fame inductee. So what about it then, listener? Are you ready to get down with the king of cocktail shakers and ditch your bottle of gin for, checks notes, vodka? Let's dive right in to this week's edition of the Cocktail College podcast. We're back in the Cocktail College studio today. And you know what? We're back again with another fellow LA Spirits Awards judge, Aaron Reese. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Aaron, I think I, the last time that I saw you, I was having a martini as a nightcap. Which, despite how often I talk about that this that cocktail on this show, is something I almost never do. I don't know what I was thinking.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a perfect way to end the night. Especially <laughs> after it? sipping spirits all day. <laughs> after
0: sipping spirits all day, having a nice little um, mezcal dinner, I believe it was. That's right. Agave spirits for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sometimes you just feel in the. Need for martini <laughs>
1: a really nice sleep. So there you yes, go. Yes, <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely, definitely slept well that night. Um, shout out though goes to them again, as always, wonderful people, our wonderful colleagues. We've had some of them on the show, I have some others uh, to join us as well. But Aaron, you're here today, and we're going to talk about a cocktail that I'll admit I've never had one before. A and B. I'm kind of struggling with the pronunciation of the name. Are we going war days or war days?
1: I've only ever pronounced it war days. War days. I mean, you have a very pretty accent. So maybe it does sound really good the first way.
0: (laughs) I saw I think when I was doing research for this, I saw somewhere online where it said war is in bar, like, so that makes it the perfect drink. But Again, that's not how my mind wants to pronounce it. I keep wanting to say war days. And then I'm like, what does that even mean? Do you have any idea what that word means? It's not one that you come across very often.
1: I mean, just from like the limited stuff online, we were kind of talking about uh, the fact that it was kind of like an old uh, colloquial term for the weekend or excuse me, the weekdays. Mm-hmm. So just kind of, you know getting a nice strong drink to kind of get you through the week, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, get you
0: through the week. And also, I think I saw somewhere as well that it also maybe was used for like cocktail hour. So like cocktail hour during the week, let's have a a, a war days. And, and you want to bet I'm going to jump between pronunciations. This yeah. <laughs> also, here's another one that really trips me up. I don't know whether from like an editorial perspective or just when we're chatting about these drinks, but like when it seems to be... Well, I think this is possessive here, but it could be plural. But I'm like, is it the Wardays or is it the Wardays cocktail? Do you know what I mean? Do you have to add that cocktail on the end of it? How would you order this drink?
1: I would say I would like a Wardays.
0: I would like a War Days. yeah
1: but I think I might have also called it The War Days, but I've never called it The War Days Cocktail. Mm-hmm. I definitely have never said cocktail for sure, but...
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's one that trips... Yeah, A probably works because it works for anything, right? You order A Manhattan, it is the Manhattan, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, this is all besides the point. I just, the, the name really tripped me up, but then did a little look into it, saw the ingredients. We like to keep things very evergreen here on Cocktail College, but sometimes we do like it when the drink just happens to align with the season and certainly you know if folks are listening to this when it comes out if folks are based here in new york we're starting to feel fall creeping in just a little bit right
1: i'm very much excited about that actually yes i was uh when we were talking about the time frame for chatting about this i was like oh this is perfect Mm -hmm. it's my favorite fall cocktail
0: (laughs) and we're going to get into ingredients but just spoiler alert here um Applejack or Calvados being one of the base spirits there for that. So, yeah, that's, so that's where I think it's it's perfect. Mm-hmm. For those out there, who the minority out there, like myself, who haven't heard of this one or aren't familiar with it, can you tell us what else is in this drink and how it's typically like what kind of cocktail this is?
1: Uh, so it's one of my favorite styles of cocktails. I'm a big fan of spirit forward drinks. Um, and this is kind of almost a Manhattan meets in Alaska in a way. Um Again, some of my favorite ingredients as well, Uh, it's a blend of a London dry gin, Um, again, apple brandy. It's kind of credited to both um, apple brandy and calvados, Um, a sweet vermouth, and then chartreuse is how it's listed on (laughs) the menus. So that one can be definitely debated.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I want to get into that in a little bit too, because obviously the the chartreuse conversation isn't going anywhere currently, but um, that's definitely something where I've seen people preparing it online, just talking about that, like the difference. If it's just listed as chartreuse, do you go yellow? Do you grow green? I feel like most cocktail nerds or bartenders maybe probably gravitate more towards green. Am I making that up? Or is it horses for courses?
1: (laughs) Maybe horse some horses for courses. Uh, this is definitely one that I've seen both ways. Um, and actually, it was funny when I was <clears throat> kind of looking through the Savoy and kind of refreshed my memory on that book. Uh, it kind of flips back and forth between um, certain classic cocktails that either they call for, it references yellow chartreuse, green chartreuse, or some of them just say chartreuse. So I don't know if that's about, like... You know, cocktail history gets a little murky sometimes. You know, Mm -hmm. I I know I've done it myself when I'm, like, working on drinks. (laughs) And you're like, oh, I tried it with that cocktail ingredient, and then I forgot either the proportion or exactly what I, you know, had tweaked at that point. So I know it can get a little bit fuzzy, but there was things like um, the widow's kiss is just listed as chartreuse. And I've only ever seen that made with yellow. Um, However, with the war days, uh, where I first had it was, maybe I don't want to skip ahead too much, but it was with green chartreuse. But I personally am a little bit more of a a yellow fan.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder whether it's just Harry Craddock's editor's a hack and he's just like, <laughs> he just let a bunch of things go through. Didn't edit. <laughs> didn't edit at all. Didn't do any fact checking. Didn't be like, wait, some of them say green, some say yellow. What's going on here, right? Like, who was editing Harry Craddock? I sure. don't know. That's maybe a question for Dave Wondrich. Um, something else that's notable about that recipe, this Savoy Cocktail book, has it as shaken? And you mentioned being a fan of spirit-forward drinks, typically we're going stirred with those, right?
1: Yes, I, w- I would hope so. I know that uh, there's like, I know that people get a little bit, um, I don't know if it's to say that they're you getting more interesting. For example, like uh, I've had some friends who, you know, Jess Gonzalez, she made the um, Hot Lips, which is a shake, excuse me, it's stirred cocktail, but with pineapple juice, mm-hmm. where it just completely changes the texture of the cocktail. But for me personally, I don't need this one to be, like extremely cold, which I think is usually the intention when you're shaking a cocktail like that. Like I think it gets better as it warms up a little bit. Um, so I would prefer this to be a stirred cocktail. A stirred drink. hmm
0: I had a little look as well. I'm like, all right, because I did feel like sometimes a lot of cocktails that come up from that book tend to be shaken when you'd expect them to be stirred. Um, the martini is one of them, like the obvious one you would look mm-hmm. for. Martinez was on the same page, so I wanted to check. Um... <laughs> But then you get the Bijou, which is not too... I forget what's in a Bijou, but I want to say it's not a million miles away from this cocktail. Very
1: Pretty similar, yeah. Pretty
0: similar. And that one's stirred. So again, is this Craddock's <laughs> editor or is this...
1: <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I almost wondered too, if like, if it was more dramatic and more entertaining for guests to be seeing someone shaking a cocktail as opposed to stirring, which I think is just equally as beautiful. It's a little bit, you know, more elegant, I feel like, when you're stirring a drink, but... I don't know if that had anything to do with it back in the day, but that doesn't make any sense to me.
0: <laughs> I think that I think that is a great theory. I think that's maybe something that comes into it because this cocktail book comes out, what, 1930? I think it's yeah. published. So just pro prohibition you want to get some of that show back, you know, you, you want to make it an occasion. And I think I also came across the fact that one of his nicknames was the King of Cocktail Shakers. So maybe like that that was just harry craddock's thing and he probably just didn't care for the bijou he's like do whatever you want with it but like your (laughs) martinis (laughs) and it shows that he cares about the war days so um that's good seal of approval there but seal of approval from yourself too erin where did you first come across this cocktail and why was that something you wanted to chat about today
1: um i got introduced to this cocktail back in i want to say it was about 2011 uh one part of the story makes me really remember exactly when it happened. Um, it was at Milk and Honey. Um, Sammy Ross, who I'm sure you've had on this show already. And if not, you need to.
0: We keep we keep putting the audio messages out there into the sphere, Sammy. <laughs> Return our calls.
1: <laughs> uh, but he, I, you know, asked for something spirited. And I think it might have been actually in the fall as well. Um, I was there. I just had started at Death & Co. And actually, we were... Uh, having some after shift drinks. I was with Joaquin Simo, who again, I don't know if you've had him on yet, but if not, you definitely need to. <laughs> we've,
0: we've had Joaquin. Okay, but, good. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, wonderful scholar as well as a you know just a thinker in this, but uh, fun person to be around he as well. Is
1: quite a pleasure. <laughs> which is why this story is very shocking. <laughs> um, and I honestly don't, like, don't even remember what we were talking about. But you know, end of the night, where you know shenanigans are ensuing. I'm already having a very strong cocktail at Milk at Milk and Honey. Uh, but I think I was like messing him up with something and like out of nowhere he just like throws his glass of, of water at me and I was <laughs> so caught off guard because I mean I knew him but like not super well at that point and I the only thing I could say was Joaquin you're the nice one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like how did you he just thought that was just hilarious and I was like okay I'm getting like you know uh <laughs> you know rats or something for being the new kid at death and go but you know that's, all in fun. <laughs> yes, all in good
0: nature. Yeah, that is that is interesting. You know what a what a period there as well. If we were, if we could take a slight detour, just in terms of you know, talk about uh, a real A team that you would have been you know working and a part of yourself and contributing to at that time. Like, it is fascinating how you have these kind of hotspots. You have these are like ground zero for so many different. often is described on this show as like families, you know, cocktail Mm -hmm. families, right? The death and kill family in a way, milk and honey as well. There are others out there, very, you know, wonderful ones. But like, I wonder how long it takes before we start to see that again. Or maybe it's happening. Like, what's your kind of reading of, of the New York scene? Is that just like a trends thing and time thing? Or was that just even though we're maybe 10 years into the renaissance at that point? It's still new and there's still a lot going on. I don't know. Or maybe it's just the hindsight of history.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope it keeps going and happening again, but I know we doubt it was a, it was such a big point of time of being, you know, 20, you know, between 2005 and 2010, I feel like a lot of like uh, very influential bars opened um, and even saying a lot wasn't, there wasn't that many of them, especially in New York at that time. Um, So, you know, and we had a decent amount of talent at that point where now I feel like there's so many awesome bars opening, and it's really hard to have that much talent, um, especially pandemic or excuse post pandemic, where a lot of people either uh, changed career paths a little bit, moved out of their that particular city, or um, you know, are yeah, just doing something completely different. But so I feel like it's been definitely tougher, mm-hmm. and there's a whole new round of like younger bartenders, which is also very exciting coming in. But um, I don't think we're quite there yet with a. Getting you know that little flash in the pan of all those like big names in one place, which is crazy. But I think that we can. I think we can get back that. Back
0: yeah. There. I, no, I think that's a great point as well, right? Like that that because of because of having like a concentration a, a relatively small amount looking back now compared mm-hmm. to today of great bars, um, and having a lot of talent concentrated within them you have that kind of movement, whereas now that's inspired a lot more bars to open. People that work in bars then go out and open up their own spaces. So it kind of becomes like the quality across the board just rises and you don't have it as concentrated in maybe like six or seven places in one city and then the same in others. Maybe like that's how things changes, Which is
1: exciting. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's tough to only be able to get into like the 120 seat bar. You know, it's nice to be able to like go to so many places, especially now that they're kind of... Um, The restaurants are taking cocktails more seriously. You can actually go to a really lovely dinner and have Mm -hmm. a great cocktail. So, I mean, the more the merrier.
0: (laughs) And also, I guess, from from a bartending point of view, too, like there are only so many spots behind that bar, whether you're a bartender or, you know, a bar back. Like, so if you want to get into those, that's harder. Whereas now the quality across the board is larger. So you have more options as a bartender, Mm -hmm. I would assume. Yeah, Totally. How was your, this is a major sidetrack as well, but how was your experience getting into Death & Co and like how much bartending had you done before that? And and what was it about Death & Co that you were like, oh yeah, this is the place I want to be?
1: I had been bartending for about six years or so before that. A few years in New York and then before that I was doing bartending in Seattle, which was funny. Looking back when you're younger, you think you know everything. And it wasn't like until I moved to New York and I like I put my resume everywhere. And I was shocked I wasn't getting all these callbacks until I was like sitting down in front of some of these places. And I was like, Oh, I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a little eye opening. Uh, But uh, yeah, I just got very fortunate. I one of my first bar jobs in New York was working for Tony Aboganum. And actually, that was another experience where I I went to go interview with him. And he kind of had a little packet to fill out and I was like okay whatever and it wasn't until I got to like this the question about name four types of gin and I was like what there's more than one like I don't understand (laughs) so I was like okay I'm intrigued because at that point I was still like I had moved to New York to kind of pursue more of an art career and at that point I realized that working with Tony kind of that it was it could be more than just bartending it was more creative and I got really excited about that aspect of it so um, it kind of made me realign my thoughts on that and kind of dive deeper into the bar world, which is I got, you know, working with him and then got some really great opportunities to work for some other amazing people. And um, kind of the way I got into Death and Co was working with Phil Ward over at MyOl, well, which is one of my favorite experiences and it still to this day bums me out so much that that place is
0: I know. Yeah. It's gone. <laughs> I'm sad to say I arrived in New York after Maya Well was no longer with us, uh, which is a shame. Um I do get to see Phil from time to time at Long Island Bar and would encourage Another anyone listening to. yeah. <laughs> but um, maybe not quite so much of an agave focus there. They have they have a lot of great things to pour there as well as the uh, cocktails. They sure do. Um, so working at Death and & Co. And then, you know, it stands to reason that maybe this is a cocktail that you would discover, like, where else might you discover it than a milk and honey because it, probably doesn't have the the kind of gusto to make it, it probably doesn't make a comeback on a Death & Co menu, right? I feel like Death & Co a lot of the time was more, you know, like proprietary drinks and not that there weren't a lot of great ones at Milk & Honey, but it's like that idea of not having a menu. So what do you do if you're working at Milk & Honey? You kind of look back and you resurrect these old drinks or you find ways to make them really good and really appealing and kind of introduce them to people. Like that seems to be um, a really natural way looking back to to discover this drink.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was actually funny when I was also doing some more research, I realized I had Robert Simonson was like looking for forgotten classics that deserved a, a comeback. And I was like, oh, I would actually quote it in <laughs> writing that because we did um, for... Back in the day, I don't know if they're still doing it now, but we were doing kind of like a classic section, even though we have like, you know, 60 or 70 of yeah. our own house creations <laughs> as well. Um, and that was at that point one that we actually featured be- it was because on? I fell in love with it so hard. And I was like, oh, well, when I took over the reins for a little while, I featured it on there. But uh, such a great cocktail. <laughs> that's awesome.
0: And and also, again, like I, I think that maybe that helps give this drink a better chance of becoming more well known, even though it's yet. Yeah definitely not in the lexicon of most drinkers but like the fact that it's on a menu versus an experience where you go and there is there is no menu even though there kind of is you know like there has to be you know what I mean but yeah I think that's um that's really interesting in terms of when you put that on the menu was it something that got ordered a lot was that something that you would try and push a lot and what were your experiences from guests
1: goodness I'm trying to (laughs) this was so long ago um (laughs) Those, those drinks I feel like didn't get ordered as much as much like that section in general because I feel like people would come in and they just wanted to try what we were doing. Um, but every once in a while I would just try if they were looking for something spirited. I just thought it was such a great classic, especially to follow up with if you're if you, a fan of the Manhattan. It's mm-hmm. such a lovely autumnal version of it that how could you not love it if you get this you know perfectly balanced cocktail in front of you?
0: Yeah. Speaking of balance, where, where do you think the balance lies in this drink? Because something we talk about a lot is the fact that a sweet drink can be balanced or a dry drink can be balanced or a sour can be balanced, right? Mm. Like where, where do you find the balance in this and what are you looking for from a, a really well-executed version?
1: So I think where this one becomes a where you can kind of go back and forth between whether it's green or yellow is what vermouth you're using. Um, I was playing around with this drink a little last night to kind of, you know, refresh my memory. Yeah, you know, for sure. Nice little nightcap. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> I realized that back in the day, I think we were, I think Carpano was such a big deal back at like 10 years 12 years ago at this point um, that I'm pretty sure that's what we were using back in the day. It was just like such a, it was like such a fan favorite and all the bartenders were just so obsessed with it. And I mean, it's still them. It's a delicious vermouth. um, But I actually tried making it with cookie torino last night and it was, which was, I love as well, but the cocktail kind of almost fell short for me.
0: Oh, interesting. Which
1: was crazy um, because I mean, I I did make it with calvados as well. So it wasn't an overly proofed um, apple brandy. um, And then, a London Dry Gin, I use beef eater, Uh, but I think that just the Torino with green chartreuse, it was, it was still a nice cocktail, but it was quite dry. Yeah. And then when I added the yellow, it was, it was good. It was, uh, it kind of added a nice roundness to it, but it just wasn't hitting the same as when I added the Carpano. I think something about that, the nice vanilla notes, and it just got a little bit more robust of a vermouth. Um, but I still. The green chartreuse worked as well. Worked well with it, but I preferred the yellow again. I think it just kind of added some nice body to it because it is such a nice, strong, spirited drink that just having that extra little honey, I guess, was nice. a really nice at, addition.
0: And so, you mentioned um, gin there, but also Calvados. Let's let's start with Calvados because that's one that definitely doesn't come up as often in this and you know it could also be apple brandy I think I actually put it down as applejack and that's pro- definitely I don't think what is in the Savoy I think I just went immediately to fall where in America we're having applejack sure you know I mean,
1: <laughs> I mean uh, that was the first time I had it was with with Laird's
0: oh really mm-hmm. I mean wonderful product and and you know feel like also that era that we were speaking about before they were really kind of doing a lot to uh ingratiate themselves and you know work with bartenders and or certainly that's what I've heard
1: yeah Lisa Laird was was quite uh quite around quite a bit yeah uh, so it was really wonderful to have you know she just being right over the border in Jersey so she was in New York a lot so uh yeah no we was a uh, I I feel like that was a big ingredient that was on every menu like every bartender wanted the really high proof you know apples yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was delicious I mean it works well in a lot of different drinks mm-hmm. um however I think for me in this drink I mean I I love and I will have the war days at now, boy every yeah. time I go. It's like my first drink every time I go in there. Um, and I will be happily have it with Laird's. Um, yeah. However, when I've made it at home for myself, I prefer the Calvados. Like, I really love how elegant and soft it can be. Um, I also really enjoy using, like, a Dom Fronten. So having a little bit of that pear that's yes. blended into there is also just kind of another nice, even though because it is such a simplistic cocktail, that having just a little tweak like that is uh, really lovely and just kind of, you know, ups that fall flavor. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I love Calvados. I, I find it to be a real sleeper hit. It's one of those where, like, if I have people over, over for dinner and I want to have a digestif, I want to have something. I'm not really a big Maru drinker. Or, mm-hmm. But also just pull something out for folks that maybe don't explore spirits that much. I'm like, try this. It's amazing. It's also, like, drier for my palate than a lot of American whiskey that I might otherwise reach mm. for, you know, or sure. bourbon. Um, you mentioned pear being in there as well. I think people just automatically think of apples, but um, why do you think those brandies that have either like a mix of the two, why do you think those really work for cocktails?
1: Um, I don't know. Just something about just the, just the softness of Calvados. Like it just, like I just love brandy in general and it kind of is and it's something I also like to use for when classic cocktails and cognac drinks, it just kind of adds that extra little layer of just like prettiness. And it's just, again, very autumnal. Um, but yeah, just, it's just like a really round, beautiful, I don't know if it's just the way that they're, the pot stills and just kind of like all that flavor that it's being able to add. But I just really, it's really beautiful.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You get the feeling as well that, you know, you would, you would absolutely enjoy drinking the base fermented product as well before (laughs) it goes into the still, right? Like Blanc that's going to be made into cognac. I'm not sure how nice those base wines are or like, uh. White dog when it comes to whiskey, right? Or just Mm -hmm. like malt. I don't know whether I want to be drinking those, but I I bet this like hard cider would be absolutely delicious. That's going as the the base of Calvados. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to go into gin in a second. Before we do, though, I think maybe something that's notable about this that we didn't mention before. Split-base cocktail back in 1930. That seems... I, I, maybe this is this is a bit condescending of me but that seems very forward thinking and not something I think feel like I encounter a lot when looking back to drinks of those era
1: no I completely agree I mean I think I one of the other things I love about it because it is such a simplistic drink but um yeah the fact that people <laughs> maybe weren't thinking about it back then but now it's like the first thing that people mention is like oh I've had I've had gin already tonight like I don't know if I can mix that you know brandy or you know bourbon or whatever that next cocktail you suggest into their uh, experience but the fact that it's just so ingrained in them that it's going to be they're going to feel horrible afterwards so the fact that you're able to like make that happen in one drink is amazing because i even feel like when we were in death and go like 10 years ago i i um scott teague one of the bartenders uh is fantastic but i feel like for a long time he that was his like uh secret weapon was always doing a split-based cocktail and it was always it was such a simplistic thing, but it just made such a big difference to the drink mm-hmm. and so much more flavor and so much com- complexity. Uh But yeah, the fact that it was back then is crazy. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> is that something where he would typically go for aged and unaged or is it just like case by case scenario? Is there is there something, a composition that's more common than the other, like both unaged, both aged or like that mix?
1: He definitely did both across the board, but I it would more commonly be aged, like yeah. blending like – um a brandy with a, a bourbon, yeah. or a, a bourbon with a rum, or things like that.
0: Nice. Yeah, I want to say uh, modern classic. I don't know whether it's officially defined as such, but the American trilogy. Another one that's mm-hmm. definitely a, yep. an Applejack. Um, and I think Mickey came up with that one with Richie. So there's a there's a tie in there as well, I guess, to <laughs> <laughs> the milk and honey family. Um, so gin, you said beefier.
1: Beefier. I mean, I. I love Beefeater for cocktails. I think it's just um, a workhorse gin. Um, but I also definitely think, first and foremost, it needs to be a London Dry.
0: Has to be London yeah, Dry. Yeah, like I
1: want that nice kind of punch of juniper, mm. some nice citrus notes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, for most classics, I'm pretty one-sided on that opinion.
0: Yeah,
1: um, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of lovely gins out there, but I just really like <laughs> that, you know, real aggressive juniper note in there.
0: And what are the four categories of gin?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we got London Dry, we've got the, uh, you know, Western style, we've got, you know, uh, uh, Old, Tom, Old Tom, and we've got your neighbor.
0: Ah, nice. Wow, uh, you put me on the spot for a second. I was <laughs> like, oh, did I forget what those were? I <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I guess they are... People are like Plymouth is a category. I feel oh, like I guess that would be the
1: fifth but I feel
0: like that's the that's the trivia question, right? Like it's it's a category of gym, but it's a category of one. Like no one. I I've tried to. I guess that would be that the fourth. Actually,
1: I think I added neighbor in its place. But yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely its own little yeah for being the one and only. <laughs> it's the one
0: and only. I think there there is another one as well. I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation: Joriger or um, Mahon.
1: Gin, oh, Mahone,
0: yeah. Mahone, you know, the one with that lovely little green handle mm-hmm. on it. Um, you don't find it around here so often. I definitely asked her to have it, but you don't find it so much in New York. But um, I think that's another one that has like a geographical indication. It's like no one else on that island is making gin. You're fine. This is yours. Like, yeah, you're, 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 you're doing You're good. It. <laughs> you don't need that. But um, the where do you stand on the whole Plymouth, uh, Plymouth beefier thing? Going down 47 to 44, do you care about that? A lot of people seem to have mixed opinions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would prefer it to be a little bit higher just because I do like spirits um, to have that higher proof just to kind of punch through those flavors a little bit better, but I'm still drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't totally hate it. I know there's some people that have been very offended by this yeah. uh quiet change that they did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I think this came up recently as well, but change back to how it's always been sold in the uk like i believe it was always a 44 percent, or at least in recent years product there like it was only in the u.s that it it was was only in the u.s we wanted more (laughs) over here sounds about right (laughs) (laughs) um next on my list of ingredients i had sweet vermouth you were mentioning carpano earlier we're talking carpano bianco um blanc white vermouth, white sweet vermouth right Oh, um, oh no, Carpano Antica.
1: Yes, I'm so sorry. Yes.
0: Ah, uh, okay. That makes a lot more sense because I was like, oh, interesting. I've never come <laughs> across it in that way. That, that sounds would be like nice something twist, I would yeah. like to try. <laughs> um Okay, so then Carpano as an ingredient is one that we've had people on the show before saying that it can occasionally hijack a drink. How do you feel about that?
1: I agree. Um, I feel like I went through a phase where back in the day I was using it all the time, uh, probably <laughs> overly using it. Um, but I think as more really lovely vermouth started coming on the market, and I think we've been really fortunate, especially in New York. We just have so access to so many things um, that we've gotten uh, to play around with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, it can definitely be a bully in a drink. Mm-hmm. And it's you have to be very uh, – choose wisely what you're kind of trying to have sing through in that drink. And it doesn't always work. But mm-hmm. I think for some reason, like just because of um, – Everything's got some niche high proof, and Chartreuse has also got some. Um, you know, has such a nice character that you know isn't going to be really easily stepped on. That I think that Carpano actually works really nicely in this drink.
0: Mm-hmm. Going back to that era as well, like it feels like there was a real movement for Carpano Antica at that time, and and or like born out of that time. Maybe before, it's a great product, as we said. We also, I'm sure you know, there's a million great products such as Calvados that (laughs) no one really knows about or no one really raves about. Um, Can you remember why that was so popular at the time? Like, was there any individual, like, were they very good with trade and programming or competitions? Like, was there anything that that kind of fueled that movement?
1: Um, I mean, I know that they're kind of, they're linked with uh, Fernet, So Fernet was huge back then. And it's, I mean still is huge um so i think it had something kind of to do with that but also i think that everyone just just like gravitated so hard to it because it was i feel like it was people were starting to actually understand that not understand but uh appreciate vermouth on its own where i think before it was kind of like an afterthought it was barely getting refrigerated right it was uh you know we were using i don't want to you know name any bad brands but you know we mm-hmm. were we weren't really caring as much about it and i feel like we've um some bartenders kind of were finally tasting this really amazing product. They were starting to drink it on its own. Like I know that was a thing. It's like you know, if you wanted to have it up a, a little bit more of a um a softer experience, I guess if you will yeah. and you wanted to take a break, you would just have a little Carpano on the rocks with an orange Ooh. twist, which is really nice. Yeah. yeah. Um so I think it was finally like one that they really embraced and that their trade or the you know, the brands really started seeing that and yeah, bartenders just finally were like, ooh, they kind of just really clung to that one in particular. Because mm-hmm. um, again, I don't think there was really a ton that were out there or were even pushing for cocktail placements. I don't know why they wouldn't be doing that, but yeah. I feel like um, the Carpano really kind of saw their entrance right there. Did a
0: great job yeah. there. Yeah. I think the the evolution of, <laughs> uh, this is pure speculation, but the um, the the number of... Vermouths that are available in a market is probably indicative of where it is in terms of like cocktail culture, right? Yeah, we know what the first one you're going to have available to you is going to be. I'll say it's going to be Martini and Rossi. Um, I think if you taste that side by side with this, it's going to taste maybe a bit thinner. Uh, maybe not as much, not as much mouthfeel, and probably doesn't have the depth of flavor and kind of botanicals and ingredients in there. So
1: sure.
0: I can imagine why, as well. At that time, if you're like, oh, for years we've only really had Martini and Rossi, and maybe Dolan dry, uh, Dolan, you know, Rouge, but we want to go to Italy for a sweet Vermouth. So then something else comes on the market. You're like, yeah, this is maybe markedly better than the Martini and Rossi, then yeah, I I can see why people would kind of turn to that and be like, it has to be that. Whereas I feel like now we've got to the point where people are maybe a little bit more pragmatic where they're like, this is a good vermouth for that drink, but Martini is great for this drink or this occasion or whatever.
1: Totally. It's very exciting that we've finally gotten to that point where we can be that choosy and like <laughs> yeah, true. at Banzerbar, I feel like we had to finally stop like bringing on uh, vermouth because our, our low boy couldn't handle it anymore. And it's like, OK, this is getting a little ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I love it, but uh, I need some more room. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: That That vermouth also, like if you want to drink something lower in ABV, as you mentioned, like great option for that. I see a lot of headlines out there about like vermouth and soda being back or being big right now. Over your years, has your experience been that that's something that like guests and consumers gravitate towards or it's more of an industry thing?
1: I feel like it's more of an industry thing. That's something I want to say I've only ever poured for industry people up until very recently. And, And even then, I don't feel like people are asking for that i think i'm seeing it more like on spanish restaurants are starting to like kind of push their their you know uh, vermouth and soda program which is great yeah um but i just yeah it never wasn't really catching on where i was at yeah at the time
0: (laughs) there is i think is what there is this alternate and and this is sorry this is very new york focused for our listeners um bear with me with this one but there (laughs) is an alternate universe where the pandemic doesn't happen and, you know, like Hudson Yards and Mercado Little Spain maybe gets more recognition or, or more people heading out there and time to build up a bit of steam. Like, I don't know. I think location's part of it, but we're right here. We're near um, uh, Vinitoli. No, what, the, what is the name of the place? We're right here. We're right near Italy. Oh, Italy. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, the, you know, you can't move around there during the weekend, certainly not at the weekend. Like, people are all over that place. Mercado's Little Spain's a little way out, but I think that, you know, the range of offerings and the people that are behind like the food and the drinks programs there are amazing. Mm-hmm. And it definitely did feel like in 2019, like we were going to have this massive Spanish movement in New York. Um, and then I don't know whether, yeah, the pandemic kind of harmed that, but like that vermouth and soda culture maybe could have happened a bit more for normal consumers.
1: Yeah, I actually was really bummed about that because I remember going when they first opened and they just had such a cool thing. Yeah, they really were uh, embracing the Spanish spirits and this, in particular this um, vermouth and soda. And then, yeah, unfortunately, I've been back since the pandemic and still had some a uh, wonderful experience. But it's definitely been like they've really uh, dialed it back dialed quite a it bit. Back.
0: Yeah, that's a shame. A number of great people behind. Yeah, like I said, the programs there. So, yeah, that is a shame. But hopefully... My my kind of tip, and we're really off off topic here, though, is like <laughs> if you're trying to get a reservation on a Saturday night, and you're and you're look and you're late to the to the game when it comes to looking for something. There's some great restaurants just on the west side there, you know, like Far West, uh, Hudson Yards, and around there that like oftentimes, yeah, don't get the recognition and have amazing people behind them. So there's a resi tip for people. I love I guess. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Moving back to the cocktail now, though, green chartreuse or chartreuse. So you said that in your version, you felt like the yellow, and that was with the um, Carpano. You felt like the yellow was the one that just there was more of a marriage there.
1: Yeah, I think also I was using Calvados too, which I think that Calvados just really lends nicely to all the honey notes that are in yellow chartreuse. Um, But I just think that with um, how spirited the drink is, just having the extra little bit of fat from the yellow chartreuse with the Carpano would just like really... Gave it a nice mouthfeel and I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed that.
0: How much presence do you want the chartreuse to have? Do you want want it to be primarily kind of an aromatic component or do you want to also like really taste that? It's coming up against a lot of ingredients, a lot of powerful ingredients in this drink.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like I kind of tweaked what what the classic um, Savoy recipe is because essentially the Savoy is equal parts sweet gin and um, apple brandy. With like a teaspoon of Chartreuse, which it's still—I mean—a teaspoon definitely goes a goes a long way. Um, I put a quarter ounce, and then brought down the sweet vermouth to three quarter of an ounce, and then one one. Mm. Um, so that really worked out nicely. But I, yeah, I really want it to to still be present. It definitely needs to be some a little bit of the sugar component to give you know some body to the drink. But yeah, I want I want it to be there. Just so you know, <laughs>
0: how much is how much heavy lifting is gin doing in this drink? Because we're getting. Botanicals, maybe more like baking spices from something like carpana, but we're getting botanicals there. We're getting wormwood, right? Like all of the botanicals as well in Chartreuse. What's gin doing? Or is this a drink where you could replace the gin with vodka and you might not realize it?
1: Ooh, ooh! <laughs> I don't know about that one. Um, no, I really think the gin still is bringing kind of the the juniper forward. You're still getting that little kind of like um, the like. I don't want to say pineiness of it of a little bit. You're also still getting the citrus. Um, we didn't talk garnish yet, but I definitely, it's there's no garnish called for this drink. However, I really feel like a lemon twist adds to it, and I think that having a gin that has some citrus notes too is also kind of cutting through some of the the necessary fat that you need to give it the mouthfeel, feel, but um, still giving it a brightness where I think that vodka would just be a little bit too blank slate for it, and I think that the calvados would be a little too present at that point. Not that mm-hmm. I. Don't want Calvados to be present for sure. I mean, I love Calvados, but I think that just having that balance that to make it be the, the full um, base of the drink is really nice. So the gin just kind of yeah it gives it that extra little citrus pop to it, mm. I guess.
0: It, it, yeah, that's one that I I guess this reminds me of the old uh, – it reminds me in a way of a Negroni. That, that's what the thing I like to think about a Negroni. And I think actually maybe Jeffrey Morgenthaler brought that up when we were chatting about it on this show, like – would you? How many people would be able to determine whether their Negroni was made with vodka or gin? And i I've always been of the opinion it's been a cup. It's been a while since I brought it up, so I'm glad to bring it up again. On no particular reason for this week, uh, I don't believe in cocktail weeks, but <laughs> um, that I think it's a Campari drink, and that's it, and and everything else is kind of like a supporting actor there.
1: Ooh. um. I don't know if I agree. I, I like that because I mean most vodkas are going to be you know around or be forty proof. Mm-hmm. Like I like that the gin's going to be usually going to be a little bit higher proof. Um, and again, I get the nice citrus notes. I feel like that it would just kind of be a little too Campari heavy because I just feel like when you add vodka to a drink, um, not to say there's not great vodka cocktails, but I think it just becomes whatever the other flavors are in the drink. It just it's an extender. Yeah. And I just think that if it was just vodka, the Campari would just be too. Would be too much. I feel like like you need something to kind of push back a little bit on it. Yeah. Um. And again, adding, you know, I prefer a London Dry style gin, but like again, having you know some uh, that real nice pop of juniper and some citrus notes to mm-hmm. that kind of like h- kind of keep Campari in its lane, I guess, if you will.
0: I, I think I got to start doing that on this show when guests come into the studio afterwards. Or we're going to have someone while we're recording, we're going to have someone else in the office preparing two Negronis. One's going to be the vodka, one's going to be the gin, and we're just going to film people. We're going to blind taste them. Which I the...
1: want to see that happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Which one is laughs> the...
0: Luckily, we didn't come up with the idea today. So you're not going to be put on the spot there. But um, all right, one more thing while we're talking about this, you know, like a drink is associated with something. We bring it up a lot recently, chartreuse, short supply. If you can't get it, am I just pressing a board? I'm not making this cocktail at all, or is there a substitute, a quick hack? If I'm – maybe someone's listening and they're like, I have all the other ingredients. I don't have green chartreuse.
1: I think this one just kind of depends on um, what your vermouth you're using. I think you just got to play with that because I think that there's another – it's really hard to have some real swaps for green chartreuse. I know like um, – Fascia Bruto's gotten one, but it's like much more vegetal, which is can make it more interesting, you know, another interesting side of that <laughs> cocktail. Um, and then for yellow rice, I know that, you know, genappe is a really nice one to kind of like swap it out. However, it's going to be a little lower proof. It's going to be a little bit more, a uh, little sweeter. So I think you'd have to play around with maybe you could do a Torino with this with genappe. Mm. So just kind of being able to kind of play around with that, you can get around not having beautiful chartreuse. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's I mean it is still out there. It's worth noting. It is still out there. Maybe not, you know, if you're running a bar and looking for a case, but I think well, I've seen some ridiculous prices on Drizzly, but it exists if, oh. if anyone is uh It's not going anywhere, entirety. but it's yeah, it's just uh
1: the the keys on that gate are a little bit tighter. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well I appreciate you using some of your um your you know your precious stocks there last night, just you know uh tweaking a few versions, refreshing yourself. How about you walk us through your preparation of this drink now, um, including your 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 spec and how you go about building it if, as if we were at the bar today?
1: Sure. Um, so, again, using a London Dry Gin, I would do an ounce. So, Beef Eater is one of my favorites for cocktails, um, classic cocktails. Uh, one ounce of, have you tried the Le Morton Calvados?
0: It's my absolute Ugh. favorite. I like to call it my secret weapon. I love it so much.
1: It's beautiful and it's one that I don't feel bad about throwing into a cocktail where it's still wonderful, but it just works out beautifully and it's much more, you know, it's cost effective for drinks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing an ounce of that. Um, three quarter ounce of our Carpano Antica. Uh, and then quarter ounce of yellow chartreuse. to kind of, yeah. I know you can play around with that one going back and forth between green or yellow or, you know, whatever you can get your hands on. (laughs) Um, Stirring that up nicely. Please do not shake that drink for me. (laughs) Uh, And then I like to do that into a Nick and Nora with a lemon twist.
0: Sounds wonderful. It's early we're recording here today, but that sounds really right. It was like crisp in the air today. Like it sounds like a nice
1: uh, evening cocktail.
0: (laughs) Um, Nick and Nora, twist, fantastic. Aaron, any final thoughts on the War Days today? The War Days. The War Days. <laughs> Before we move on to our uh, quick no, hit I just hope that
1: more people um start you know looking into classics more. I think that with the newer generations, I think that mm-hmm. you know everyone and this is just not even just newer generations. I know that when I first started bartending, you know the first thing you want to do is get creative and get in there and uh play around with cocktails and things. But I think that going back to classics and studying up the classic cocktail books, um is the best way to do it. And then you can kind of build on from there. So I hope that more people are reading about the war days and so that I can go into a bar and they don't look at me like I'm crazy when I order it.
0: (laughs) Amazing. All right, then let's do it. Let's let's finish off the show today with our weekly recurring questions beginning with number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar?
1: Um, So it's a funny one because I'm not currently behind a bar at the moment. Um, So I was looking at my personal back bar at home. And where I realized uh, where I don't have things is actually where the most popular things are living on my bar. Um, I feel like gin cannot live long enough at my house. uh, So I'm constantly having to, uh, you know, we don't drink a ton at home. But when we do, it's always we gravitate to like a martini or a Negroni. Yeah, that's just such a nice chill dinner or after dinner drink that we make quite often our house (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. nice um and we should say of course as well i can't believe i didn't mention this up top i believe you're the first um guest whose partner husband in this case has also
1: been on the show yes uh i was so happy to he came on a it's been a couple month ago gosh i don't know Uh, where time's going (laughs) a little bit of
0: a while ago there but uh folks um head over to the godfather episode to listen to that wonderful conversation we had i enjoyed that one a lot as well um so gin i'm in the same predicament there as well i everything else american whiskey bourbon i have a ton of it and i barely drink it and it just stays there forever and my gin shelf i'm constantly being like oh my god to buy another bottle of Fords. <laughs> yeah,
1: because I feel like I have so many little things that I'm like, oh, that's just too special. Like, okay. that's for something else. But gin, I just feel like it's just, you know, it's always going to a cocktail. So I'm like, oh, it's fine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Um, I got one for both. Uh, I think for product, which I was hoping this was getting some traction and I feel like I just... It's it's kind of there, but not really, but verjuice, I just think it's such a fun ingredient, and I love using it for uh, non-alcoholic cocktails. Um, I love using it for regular, you know, classic cocktails to kind of uh, make a drink a little bit lower proof. Um, I love adding it into kind of like, where shaken cocktails, you don't add, I mean, excuse me, stirred cocktails, you don't add citrus, obviously, but it's kind of, it's like almost in a cheat in a way where you're kind of adding a really cool touch of acidity into a stirred cocktail. Um, but I just feel like it's not... We're not getting there yet. I don't yeah. get it. Like, I I feel like I've been in love with this for like the last 10 years. And I keep thinking that it's going to get easier to get. And I feel like <laughs> there's been times where I've had it on a menu and I'm like, oh, we need to run out and get it because our delivery didn't get here. And it's like a nightmare trying to find out in the wild. It just doesn't really it's gotten a touch easier, but it's like, yeah, not as easy as it should be. <laughs> Especially for being like a, a, a kitchen staple as well, you would think it would be easier to find.
0: Yeah, definitely. That was something I was going to say. I was like, "That's that's something I only really ever encountered in my in my kitchen days." But it's yeah, it's an it's an interesting one because it is a it is a kind of classic ingredient. Yeah, especially in French cooking. There, yes, exactly. Um, I'd never thought about that before. It's Something you mentioned there. You're like, I was hoping it was going to happen, and. Part of you can be like, well, why does it matter if it's there, if it's available? Like if Calvados never happens, I could care less as long as I can get my Lamoran for my drinks, you know. (laughs) But uh, that's a good point if you're running a bar and you need that product, the delivery falls through. You kind of invested in it being a little bit more of a thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, during the pandemic, I feel like it. Every item took, like, its turn being out of stock. And I remember that when we got to uh, Virgil, I was just so <laughs> devastated because there was nothing, like, <laughs> I couldn't just go out and make it because I remember looking up a recipe to be like, oh, can I just do this? And they were like, one time a year, you could get this one grape that'll work for this particular. And it's like, oh, God.
0: Oh my so I was God. like, okay,
1: well, I guess that drink's going off the menu. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it the progression, what they go like, sourdough, jigsaw puzzles. And then finally people were like, I guess we're just going to figure out what we do with Regina. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you received while working in this industry?
1: Um, one that I actually got recently, um, we did, uh, you're familiar with the Speed Rack? absolutely uh love that organization um it's done so much for me in my career i won season two years and years ago um and have still kind of like stayed like almost like an unofficial ambassador for years and then nice. in the last couple of years i've gotten to kind of be part of a mentorship team um which has been really fun it's been great to kind of like you know meet the new generation and kind of like pass on my love of you know bartending and kind of being able to help you know give some guidance and things and this last year um one of the other mentors, uh, Jess Pomerantz, gave us really great uh, – we were trying to, like, think of good things for uh, the ladies who are going on of tails and just kind of things to kind of, you know, be safety and things like that. And one of the things she actually mentioned was, like, always make sure that you are saying hello to the person next to you because you never know who you're going to be around. And it's always just – you know, you get uh, – it's it's always such a great networking experience, especially down at, at tails, of course. But, like, you just – You never know who you're going to be sitting next to, if it's at the bar or if it's, you know, out in public or whatever. But it's always just nice to constantly be kind of, you know, meeting someone new and you just never know where that can go. So I thought that was a really nice little piece of advice.
0: Great piece of advice for life as well. Right. Exactly. I love that. Um, I could definitely do more of it as well myself. You know, (laughs) does that extend to the airport? I'd say
1: (laughs) that might be pushing it a little bit.
0: I think if you're in the lounge. That makes me sound like a snob. But yeah. I think if you're in the lounge. When you're in Delta Lounge. <laughs> then you're all right. Um, if you're trying to get a a Dunkin' Donuts, maybe pass, I don't know. No, that's that that sounds classic. That's that's not true. I've met a lot of random, wonderful people at airports before. Never in the lounge.
1: Mm, I always <laughs> love sitting at the, you know, always having a drink before my flight. So, you know, that's when you can like easily make friends and it's like yeah. not really weird. <laughs> also the
0: airport, like all all bets are off like there are no rules you can chat to anyone it's it's almost it's like a mulligan it's like never going to see these people again might as well just have a conversation you know like
1: true and i'm sure you're usually always going through like the same horrible experience i mean hopefully it's not but you know it's always something of delayed flight or whatever you live there now exactly yeah (laughs) you guys can commiserate with each other (laughs) it's a good bonding experience (laughs) yeah yeah
0: all right question number four if you could only visit one last bar in your life what would it be
1: is it bad if the bar doesn't exist anymore?
0: No, actually, and sometimes that's that's better because then bars that are still around won't be like there's, you know, favoritism going on uh, here.
1: Fair enough. Um, I have to say Maya, well. I still just bums me out because I don't know if you know, but the bar still is there, the space, and it's it's opened by the landlord who, unfortunately, we had the falling out with. But, uh I don't know exactly now what's going on there, but mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely not my wall anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I just definitely miss that moment of time and, like, the just the experiences I was, you know, learning about Agave at that time and just, like, being able to sit at that bar and just, like... There was always such an amazing team of bartenders that were just so nerdy and so knowledgeable and just... But also at the same time, you could just go in there and just hang out and shoot the shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I uh, definitely miss that bar, and I would definitely spend my last day at that bar with having... Um, they used to also have these quesadilla that had like mango salsa in it, and I would be oh having gosh. one of those and uh, be having uh, a shattered glasser, which I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's like the drink that has probably <laughs> one of the most ingredients ever. I think Phil put like 12 <laughs> ingredients in that cocktail, um, but it's a nice stirred, spirited, mm-hmm. also quite a ton up, excuse me, uptonimal, uptonimal, I can't even say words anymore. Well, Tom, no. <laughs> Tom, <no>. um, <laughs> like a ton of baking spice. It's absolutely mm. delicious, but
0: yeah. uh, I'll be sat there next to you having a uh, division bell.
1: Ah, oh, so y- good. Just
0: classic there. Um, speaking of Phil and Joaquin funny story behind that one. I'll save that for off the air. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, final question for you here today. Aaron Reese, if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: So going back to gin, I'm a huge martini fan. I would have like I know I said beef it earlier, but like for a martini, I would I always try and go tangere if it's available. I just really love that super punchy gin. Yeah. Uh so Tangere martini with uh, one Castle olive and the twist.
0: Nice democratic. Yeah. <laughs> I love it.
1: <laughs> so good.
0: Well, Aaron, thank you first of all for uh, wetting my palate, for uh, enjoying a War Days Days cocktail later. (laughs) I look forward to having my first. I'm glad that we've had this chat so that I'm going into that with a lot more insight than is available online. I think that we... (laughs) I think that we might have just contributed possibly the most info there is online. I think
1: you're correct. (laughs) Certainly easily discoverable.
0: (laughs) Um, So thank you for that. But thanks for joining us today. It's been long overdue.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me. It's a treat. (laughs) Cheers.
0: Okay. I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript you can check it out there all over again if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts whether that's apple spotify or stitcher and please tell your friends now for the credits cocktail college is recorded in new york city and produced by myself and darby seaside who also composed our awesome theme music just give that a listen folks I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin editor-in-chief Joanna Sharino, and art director Daniel Grinberg who designed our killer logo finally thank you listener for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose until next time